0: Today we are examining the sequel to Marvel's biggest hit, biggest hit ever in the 1980s. The sequel, the Secret Wars. You hear Secret Wars all the time now. Secret Wars. It's in a movie. It's in Avengers. It's the Secret Wars. Which Secret Wars are they doing anyway? There's so many to choose from. We're gonna we're gonna talk that out at the top of the show today. But then we're gonna get into the sequel to Secret Wars, 1985's Secret Wars Two. It has to be seen to be experienced. But did you know that there's an entire first issue of that? didn't make it to print it got it got it got trashed it got dumpstered and 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 then they then they started off with the new creative team but we're gonna we're gonna look at the original premise the original pencils the original pages to secret wars 2 why did it go awry why did that sequel fail to hit the mark and as a bonus an interview in, in Comics Interview Magazine from 1985 when Secret Wars 2 was coming out with a retailer that is so bonkers you have to hear what I'm going to read to you. This guy is batshit nuts crazy and I'm sharing it with you today on Observations. Hello everybody welcome to another edition of Observations. I I'm your host, Rob Liefeld of Rob Liefeld, the comic book guy, the creator of so many comic books, uh, 10,000 pages written 5,000 pages drawn. I've been in this business, uh, for 36 years and counting have had the great pleasure of drawing comics, publishing comics, producing comics, writing comics, editing comics, uh, running a a comic book studio, seeing my work adapted into video games, cartoons and uh, obviously on the big screen and small. And I've had a blast the entire time. This conversation that we have on a weekly basis is an extension of everything that's currently going on with the comic book pop culture mashup that is just everything that we exist in now, like every day, 24-7. I I, I say this at the top of every show because I just want you guys to know that I grew up in a period where comic books had not yet hit the mainstream. They were trying. Marvel was taking the biggest swings they could, getting this stuff on television and cartoons. But obviously in the last 12, 15 years is when Marvel just exploded. Obviously the Fox films were the first entry... The, the X-Men films were, were the first ones to kind of take flight. I reject the notion about Blade being the first comic book movie that, that, that ignited all this. That is not true. It did not get one single movie going. It did not greenlight anything else. Blade, an aside here that I love talking about because my friends actually were the executives who were making Blade at New Line Cinema with Wesley Snipes, with the filmmakers. They bought it because it was a vampire thriller. With a new angle, it wasn't a superhero. They didn't see him as a superhero. If you saw the first Blade, he's not a superhero. He's in he's in a battle with vampires. It did very successfully because it was very well made. It was it was a huge success because it was very well made. That being said, I believe it made about eighty million dollars, um, and that was in an age where there were movies making three hundred million of, of dollars. The, the Men in Black movies, the Independence Days, uh, these movies were. And, and, and at a time when Titanic had made whatever, $600 million. I mean, this uh, was a great time to kind of dip your toe in, in that well, but it did not inspire a bunch of other comic book movies because the next time you would see a comic book movie is two years down the road uh, with X-Men in 2000. And they'd been fighting to get that made forever and ever and ever. And in fact, for two years, nothing else was going into production because on the heels of Batman and Robin, because that's all the industry understood at the time, they had shut down any superhero movies because if the Batman movies wouldn't, couldn't work or had stopped gaining traction, then they said, well, nobody wants anything because they rejected Batman. And they didn't for one minute believe that it was because Batman was poorly made. They just figured, well... This poorly made Batman has turned everybody off to superheroes. Nobody wants them. Along the way, there were some clunkers. Sha- Shaquille O'Neal as, as you know, Steel. And, 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 of course, you know, whether you love it or you hate it, it was not, uh, uh, it did not meet with the success that people wanted. I'm speaking of Spawn. But then following that, the next year, 98, Blade blows up. Does really well. Good word of mouth. Everyone feels good about it. But it had no traction. It didn't give birth to anything else. When X-Men happened, that's when, whoa, X-Men. We had heard that this was a big deal. It was a harder concept to communicate. You know, the 90s had tons of vampire movies, so Blade was another in a long line of successful vampire um, kind of very carefully budgeted films. X-Men showed everybody what was pop- popular with a ensemble group of characters, and that ignited the, the entire culture to where we are now because not much, you know, much, much further down the road, you got Batman Begins, which kind of sort of got the Batman train rolling again. But it was the Dark Knight that, that blew that up the same summer that Marvel Studios launched their very first film in Iron Man, which we all know took everybody by storm. In the middle, those Sam Raimi movies followed right on the heels of the X-Men movies and they were even more successful so then you had the Sony Spider-Man movies the Fox X-Men movies, movies because X2 did extremely well you want to talk about a noticeable punch up in budget just go from 2000s X-Men to the X2 the, the sequel and the sheer amount of marketing and the posters and the commercials and you know the box office it grew huge, it was exponentially bigger than the first so comic book movies had officially arrived but they hadn't taken over the culture with with the Avengers in 2012 and we've covered it at, at, at length here, they took over the culture and it is the world that we now live in because once streaming exploded you knew they were going to find their place onto the streaming platforms and they have recently, and this dovetails into all that we're going to discuss today Marvel announced in Hall H at the most recent Comic Con just a few weeks back they 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 uttered the words Secret Wars, an Avengers movie, Secret Wars, and the funny thing is, prior to that, you would still be able to Google Secret Wars and maybe get uh, uh, some of the you'd get some of the uh, comic book images to come out. Now, you do Secret Wars, and all that comes up is 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 so much of the the Avengers stuff. Okay, so much of it is the Avengers you know, secret war stuff. And it's funny to me because now that they've got a a movie coming out that says Avengers secret wars. Well, uh, people are debating which secret wars to bring in. And today we're going to have a lot of fun discussing this entire secret wars dilemma because we're going to discuss the sequel to secret wars, which I have avoided up till now for all myriad of reasons, but I am going to embrace it. And we're going to examine it because there's stuff about the secret wars two sequel that you do not know. Uh, Maybe you don't want to know, but you are going to be so much more versed in The Secret Wars than you were when you first tuned in today. We did a dedicated podcast on Secret Wars. Jim Shooter, the editor-in-chief, during the glorious Bronze Age era, and I have given him all the props, and in a nutshell I can tell you why he unleashed a generation's worth of imagination. Frank Miller, he armed him as a writer and an artist. A a 20-something Frank Miller... Who hadn't written or drawn any monthly comics, coming off a few bi monthly daredevil jobs, hands him the reins, says, Take it over, drive it. Along comes Elektra, Stick, The Hand, this reimagining, uh, new approach, a more vicious bullseye that they, some had somehow been set up in the issue that he did with Roger McKenzie, but then Frank just completely makes it his own. He then does the sequel to his own work with David Mazzucelli and Born Again, which is what they're doing with Charlie Cox, seemingly for the second time, because I thought, that Daredevil season 3 on Netflix was a loose born again but now we are doing Marvel's version of this with the same actor it's going to be interesting i'm going to you know it'll have my full attention because because the born again material the the the, the source material is so rich but frank miller is just one piece of the puzzle because he then not only does he transform daredevil into a monthly best selling, number one selling book for Marvel, a book that was barely scraping by, as we have covered many times on this. He goes and he does the very first Wolverine spin-off series. That miniseries sold a gazillion copies on Frank Miller's name. He then goes to DC, he does Ronin, he does Dark Knight, he blows up. Sin City. Frank Miller is one of the, if not the, seminal talent of the last 50 years. And if you don't know why everyone celebrates him so much, then maybe go back to the beginning and look at his work and see the progression and see the excitement that he generated. Walter Simonson had never had a venue, an opportunity like he did when Jim Shooter unleashed him on Thor. And he gave us Beta Ray Bill, and he gave us Ragnarok, and he gave us so much in, in the way of the most unhinged imagination on that book since the original Kirby run and that is saying something that is saying something he had to split the baby between Chris Claremont and Jim and and John Byrne and he satisfied both of them he gave Chris the the solo helm of the X-Men book and he gifted John Byrne Fantastic Four to write and draw which John did for five years John also then does a spin-off book of characters that he created during his epic X-Men run Alpha Flight, that becomes Marvel's best-selling book of the year that it is released. Breaks records with the sales. Jim was a, a tremendous talent manager. Also, during his time, he unleashed the licensing machine. All the great toys. G.I. Joe, ROM, Micronauts, Transformers, movie adaptations, even the stuff that I've, I've done. In, if you look, listen to the Indiana Jones episode, in there I detail, right out of the pages of history, how he had... Been reluctant to do any more movie releases because they weren't, they were kind of ground, grounding out for Marvel. They weren't having the same success as, say, a Star Wars did, which had brought in so much excitement and really saved the company from all of the red ink and put them squarely in the black again. Yes, that happened. There's a dedicated Star Wars episode as well. Season one of the Rob Observation show, because I started it with my childhood and i walked through how all of these publishing titans kind of, you know, Put their grip on the culture there in you know, on our on our business of cult, of, of comic books. It it's, it's it behooves you. I'm young. I'm new at podcasting. Uh, at the time, season one, but I give a lot of very in depth, uh, very researched uh, history along the way. The, the great thing that I have heard from you guys, and I appreciate it so much, is that you appreciate the way that I curate and cultivate. All of the stuff I never threw away, <laughs> all of the magazines and the books and, and, and the interviews, uh, that, that people just, you know, I guess if you weren't there, you're not going to encounter it. They're impossible to find. I know like there's a couple stores I've wandered in before and they're like, look, we just got all these news magazines from the, from the eighties and nineties covering comic books and I'll scoop them all up to fill in the gaps in my own collection. And uh, there are so many important interviews and news bits in that stuff that you absolutely you know, should be experiencing because it gives you motivation, it gives you inspiration, and I am always happy enough to share that. We're going we're gonna to cover a lot of that today with Secret Wars too. But Jim Shooter, among all the other things that he did right, and I just showed you the cultivation of licenses, that created millions and millions and millions of dollars for Marvel as a publishing brand. And what did they do with that money? They poured it back into talent. That's why the talent during Shooter's period. That's why Jim Shooter, Jim Starlin, did The Death of Captain Marvel. The graphic novel program was launched on him. Jim Shooter is the most accomplished editor in chief in the history of Marvel outside of Stanley. He blows past Roy Thomas. Uh, you know, Tom DeFalco made a lot of canny moves and, and, and mirrored a lot of Jim's success, but getting their first matters, and Jim got their first in many, uh, in many aspects. Then there was the Bob Harris regime, followed by the Casada regime, followed by the Axel Alonso regime, and we are currently in the CB Sobolski regime, and he reminds me of the stuff that I liked about Shooter and DeFalco the most. There was a lot of agenda in those other guys. Uh, and, and and I don't think Marvel shined as bright um a couple you know hitting singles you know hitting doubles that's great but home run after home run after home run after home run those were not achieved under those uh, under those regimes because they were more they didn't have the same purity in regards to the craft that I think somebody like Jim shooter did who again very controversial acknowledging that he's controversial from someone who you're listening to has been controversial. Uh, and Frank Miller, who is now controversial. I mean, everybody has some sort of controversy that they have been mired in. Or maybe if they don't, they're not terribly interesting to begin with. But Shooter, his crowning achievement was putting it all together the marketing, the toys, when he created the Secret Wars movement. That 12 issue miniseries, 1984, best selling book of 1984, Marvel's biggest hit to date. The Beyonder was introduced our Marvel heroes were spirited away to another planet where they would be pitted against each other. Villains would become heroes. Heroes would become villains. Masterminds would be revealed. You had big A-list bad guys, just some of Marvel's best and brightest. You had Kang the Conqueror. You had Magneto. You had Dr. Doom. And they were all under the spell of this cosmic entity known as the Beyonder. It was a great motif It sold extremely well. People went nuts over it. But I'll give you some dissenting views of that shortly here in this wild. I'm going to share something that's just completely wild. Again, out of the treasure troves, and I can't wait to read it and share it with you. But Jim Shooter's Secret Wars, Mike Zek, John Beatty, both guys who I became friends with in the late 80s. Mike Zek, a more generous, kind gentleman I have not met in comic books. Uh, He did huge award-winning runs, critically acclaimed runs on Master of Kung Fu, Shang-Chi, that that, that, uh, really did the back half of that entire series that went to like 125 issues. I mean, he did a giant chunk, kept it monthly. He pivoted from that to Captain America. He uh, pivoted from that to Punisher, Secret Wars. Um, Mike was a Giant piece of Marvel success teamed alongside Jim Shooter. They gave you this Fantastic Four, X Men, Avengers, Spider Man, the black costume, the symbiote. That's that's part of Secret Wars. I mean, it just hit all the right buttons. It excited an entire fan base. I mean, I was 15 years old. The absolute. I, I can't even imagine if I was eight or nine or 10, 11, 12. Uh, I can't imagine how much more bullseye it would have been. Born of a toy line, I, I would encourage you from this point on to go find my uh, dedicated Secret Wars podcast. I believe it's a season two, uh, maybe, maybe somewhere late 2020, early 21, 2021, I did uh, the Jim Shooter Secret Wars story. The absolute impetus behind uh, them doing this miniseries that that came alongside these Mattel this Mattel toy line. It was really driven by the idea that Mattel wanted to make this toy line. Again, I give you all the details, the interviews, the quotes. What happened was, Secret Wars was so ridiculously successful. I mean, it moved. Every issue was the most popular Marvel comic in the store that month. And Mike Zeck, when he couldn't do the entire 12 issue thing, Bob Layton stepped in. Uh, capably did a couple of issues. I have the Omnibus on the shelf behind me. I read directly from that Omnibus in those uh, dedicated podcasts, those dedicated episodes about Secret Wars. But then, post-Secret Wars, touching that kind of success, even Jim's biggest allies would be quoted from Jim Salakrup to John Byrne, that they felt that something had changed in Jim Shooter. Something had changed. His perspective changed. His outlook changed. He didn't quite have maybe the same self-awareness. He was just so wrapped up in the next big hit, the next big thing, because when you make that much money for the company and you're the boss and you wrote the thing because kind of maybe in in some way, shape or form, you wrote off the people that maybe we're going to do it. But but Jim, I think, was not about whining. He gave assignments to people by that time. He had been an editor-in-chief for many years. And he's like, look, dude, if this is too much for you, I'll just do it. Because he was capable. If you don't know this, Jim Shooter broke into comics at 13 years old and wrote DC's Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes, mailing them in from his house on lined notebook paper that professional artists drew from. He was that imaginative. He caught the attention of DC editors in the very late 60s, early 70s, and broke in as an extremely talented teenage writer. Since then, obviously, Jim has had controversy and success, a big mix of both. He has my admiration, but I have to agree, especially by what we're going to share here with Secret Wars 2, that there were some cracks in the foundation that they were definitely showing. There were some really poor choices made that resulted in the... Worst best-selling event ever uh, in, in, in the form <laughs> of Secret Wars 2. Uh, the next time I find somebody who stands up to take a bullet for that book will be the first time I ever see anybody stand up to take a bullet for that book. When I say Mike Zeck and John Beattie, and I'm, and you're like, well, I've never heard of them. Well, the Master of Shang-Chi work that I told you, the Captain America work that I told you of, the Punisher miniseries that I told you of, these are very respected, polished work. Mike is a A-list draftsman, artist with a tremendous personal style. He still gets all manner of commissions and attention whenever I do conventions with him. Mike is still very popular. Again, he's a, he's he's got a slight southern drawl. He's such a sweet man. He drew amazing things in my sketchbooks for me, did crazy commissions for 15, 16-year-old Rob Liefeld. He he took me to you know, he and John Beatty would let me crash Marvel parties. Um they they were just They believed in the fact that I would be a professional one day and even maybe more so than I did at the time, but they had mercy on me and along the ways I learned stories and the thing about Mike is he felt like the Secret Wars work that he did, even though it was so successful, was extremely micromanaged. You need to know that going into this. He felt it was extremely micromanaged by Jim Shooter because I said to him, you didn't draw this book like you drew the other stuff. You would do these nasty, awesome, and I mean nasty in the best possible way. Really juicy close-ups on Shang-Chi or Fu Manchu, the different villains on Captain America, Red Skull, you know, his Punisher. I mean... He was so capable of pulling the camera in really tight and giving you all these amazing facial details. But on Secret Wars, so much of it was shot medium. The camera is pulled back medium on so many different shots. And even as a kid, I was like, Why is why does the camera not go in for close ups? And often the close the closest that he could get in with his camera in, in, in regards to the storytelling was two shots, three shots. Barely ever was there a single just, you know, one character close up. And he said Jim Shooter wanted him to pull the camera out to show the characters together as often as possible. He felt that was something that the, that the audience really wanted to see, was they wanted to see as much as possible the Fantastic Four standing next to the X-Men, standing next to the Avengers, standing next to Spider-Man. So medium shots are something that even when I was breaking in, the editors would tell me, use your establishing shot, which is the furthest possible, that you can generally pull the camera back to show the city, you know your environment, If you're in the jungles, if you're in the savage land, if you're on Mars, if you're in Manhattan, Los Angeles, San Francisco, distinct skylines, then you move your camera in. And then you start to mix it up, and there should be at least one close up. And then you will pull out to reestablish medium shots because you want to get as much of the acting of the body language and the gesture as you possibly can. Most of this is covered. If this is all you're going to make it and you're about to leave, How to Draw Comics the Marvel way is the absolute best example of this. John Buscema, remember that name, John Buscema, who is on my Mount Rushmore episode. On my Mount Rushmore is John Buscema, possibly the most polished, accomplished uh, illustrator of comic books ever. Not the most imaginative, not the most dynamic. I'm talking about the polished, and the quality of his pencils. I have spoken of his work on Conan. I have spoken of his work on Avengers. I have spoken of his work on a uh, fantasy uh, in our swords and, sorcery, swords and sorcery episodes, of which there are several, and, a, and a, a magazine that he did called Warriors of the Shadow Realm, an extension of a concept that they Marvel had called Weird World, which was basically Marvel's Lord of the Rings. John Buscema was, is, I mean, he's in past tense. John passed on many, many years back. Uh, but the polish of his pencil, the 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 gestures, the action, the staging, the blocking, he was one of the best ever. And on on talent alone, he is one of the greatest illustrators along the lines of Anil Adams. John had some Frank Frazetta in him. John had some Hal Foster in him. John had a little bit of of everybody. Um, the 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 uh, the quality of his beautiful lines are unparalleled well you know in how to draw the comics the marvel way they they show you how to mix up the dynamics and some of that was missing from secret wars the tilted dramatic camera movement and because again it was so many establishing shots and medium shots i'd say more medium shots than anything and again Mike Zek, it 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 really weird on him because he wanted to go do those. Artists want to draw faces. If the, if not for faces, I wouldn't draw comics. I love drawing faces. I love the when you can get really tight on a face and give a dramatic expression, either surprise, anger, shock, awe. Um, just uh, the the face is what holds the most attention for me, and the face is what I assign my favorite artist as. It's, it's the faces that drew me to Jim Starlin, to John Byrne, to Frank Miller, uh, you know, to George Perez, to Neil Adams. Oh, I mean, the most beautiful, distinct, stylistic in most cases, stylistic faces. So, Zek was restrained on Secret Wars. The reason I'm going over and over and over in this because some of this is going to rear its ugly head in this sequel. So what do you do when you have the biggest selling series of 1984. You do not hesitate to put out a sequel to that. So the sequel to Secret Wars is what we're going to discuss the most today. And we're going to come at it and peel this back from a few different layers. But when people ask Secret Wars, which one are they going to give us in terms of Marvel and the cinematic you and and, and these actors? A couple years back, Jonathan Hickman did a Secret Wars. It was very well done. I really enjoyed it. I don't know how you skip Beyonder and the original Secret Wars to get there, I just don't. I don't. Uh, the Secret Wars that Jonathan Hickman did dealt with Doctor Doom, Doctor Strange, in this uh, kind of cosmic battle of wills and reshaping of reality. It is very much a Doctor Doom trained story, and yet we have yet to meet Doctor Doom. And I don't know that you can get to where we need to be with Doctor Doom cinematically if we just only meet him next year. And so that is where I just go. I don't really understand how you can skip. We all met Beyonder. When they were all taken by the Beyonder, all these Marvel heroes, and when they were all whisked away to this uh, to this epic, best-selling, riveting, historic, crazy, awesome, amazing miniseries, and again that 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 overachieved in the biggest possible way in the in in the manner um, that that that, that it, it exceeded everything you could possibly imagine in regards to a toy tie-in, ironically. DC Comics just so you know was doing a toy line at the same time they did the original Secret Wars with superpowers. Jack Kirby did it, a couple other artists did it, but Jack Kirby was the premier name attached to it and they had Hasbro had their their superhero toys. It was the Battle of the Dueling Superhero Toys. I remember the superhero action the the the, the Superpowers, DC Superpowers was the name of the line. I liked them more, but the Marvel ones were harder to come by and sold out faster. But apparently it didn't have the muster to keep going. I don't think it moved the play sets and the bigger items that the uh, that the toy company, Mattel, wanted because that's the one thing that Star Wars and G.I. Joe did. They they, they pushed big, high-end, expensive play sets, cantinas, Death Stars, uh, Millennium Falcons, Star Destroyers, TIE Fighters, vehicles, vehicles, vehicles. That is where you start getting into the big, big, big earnings, and, and, and Secret Wars didn't, go, I believe, go beyond the action figures. So... But still, the comic book became the number one comic book for Marvel and one of its biggest sellers ever. So, in regards to the original Secret Wars, it was really simple. The Beyonder, this cosmic entity, kind of a greater power than even Galactus, summoned them all. They lived on this planet called Battleworld, and they were basically, you know, pitted against each other to kill each other. It was like an integral. It's like Marvel's Hunger Games. That's what the original Secret Wars is. It's Marvel's Hunger Games, winner, take all the outcome to be determined by the champion. And so they schemed in, in a manner with which to, you know, handle this threat. Some saw opportunity like Dr. Do. Maybe I can harness this. Maybe I can bring this beyond to his knees and harness him and the others. How do we get home? How do we work together? Uh, as I said, friends became foes, foes became friends. It was a fun read. Was it, on the same level as the greats that I talk about where it's Claremont Burns X-Men, Miller's Daredevil, Simonson's Thor. No, but it was entertaining. And it was it gave it gave you what you wanted. It again did give you Captain America standing next to the Thing standing next to Colossus standing next to Black Costume Symbiote, Spider-Man battling Kang and Doctor Doom and Titania and the Absorbing Man and Galactus simultaneously. I mean, guys, very it was it was just really simple kind of give the fans what they wanted we love mashups we love team-ups we still do now that marvel movies always regularly have another cast member we get excited we get excited oh my man thor's gonna battle you know the hulk here and iron man's gonna show up and help spider-man and doctor strange is gonna feature x y and z and it's it's very exciting it's really exciting it gets the people excited what'd they do with the sequel to man of steel what well, they thought the best way to get the bang for their buck is immediately put Batman in there and Wonder Woman at the same time. And so Batman versus Superman was born with Gal Gadot being introduced as Wonder Woman. She got three, three, three tastes instead of one because they figured that's what people want. Because Marvel had beaten them to the punch with Civil War and had pitted Iron Man versus Cap with Black Panther and Ant-Man. And, and it was a blast. and And there's no looking back. Because from Infinity War to Endgame, obviously, it got bigger and better. And that is kind of the scope that was applied to Secret Wars as the comic book. But it was just fun. It was giving the audience what it wanted. It was gobbled up. It was consumed. So naturally, you're going to get a sequel. Did you know that there's an entire first issue of Secret Wars 2? Drawn by one of the most accomplished pencillers that they had. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Secret Wars 2 brings the Beyonder now to Earth. As he explores us and semi evaluates and judges us. For whatever reason, and from the minute when I was a kid, when they announced what the sequel, when it's like the original was all these heroes spirited away to Battle World, where they would basically have their Hunger Games to see who is the strongest to survive and escape. And now the sequel is The Beyonder Comes to Us. He comes to Marvel Universe in 1985, and he walks among everybody. And experiences the world as a man. He takes the shape of a man. Also a little messianic Christ, you know, uh, Christ-like imagery there. Well, when they showed you what the Beyonder was going to look like, he is in basically a white head-to-toe version of what Michael Jackson is wearing in Thriller. Uh, when he is out with his girlfriend leaving the movie theater, and then he starts to dance and sing and and do his famous Thriller song. Michael Jackson is in head to toe, toe, like a leather, somewhat members only leather pants outfit. A members only is a brand of jacket. (laughs) Members only is a jacket for those of you like, what is he saying? Members only was a really hot jacket brand. It it was a label. It was cool. It was upscale. It was better than all the others. I mean, look, you're wearing a what? A members only jacket. They were distinctly tailor-made with certain collars and wrist cuffs and a certain uh design and everybody in high school in the 80s had their members only jacket whether it was blue it was white it was cream it was gray and I had them I had several of them and then you saw Michael in a leather version of it with leather pants to boot and you know promoting thriller well the beyonder his costume his look his visual that they're going to bring to us that they're going to you know, push on us in this 1985 sequel to the greatest best selling comic book Marvel has ever had in their history is in a white version of Michael Jackson's thriller members only garb. Head to toe, kind of a baggy um, parachute pants, which is a term for a loosely fitting pant, tight at the waist, tight at the ankle, and kind of everything else. Like it has a little air trapped in it. Yes, 80s fashion on fleek, okay? Uh, uh, The members-only jacket look, the high collar, the wrists. The Beyonder looked like a wannabe uh, somewhere between El DeBarge, who was a singer at the time from the DeBarge family of singers. And yes, I am dating myself and enjoying it. Very much enjoying dating myself because I'm in high school. I'm in high school during this time. This is my teenage years, my formative teenage years. And so... The beyonder looks like a, and he's got Jerry curls, curly hair, the kind that you would, um, men with permed hair had become a thing. I had never, I I never permed my hair, but I had friends who had great, like long, like surfer hair and they took part in the fashion and they'd come back to school on Monday. And it's like, they went to the barber and they got their perm, which was curlers and a certain style that, that, that the hair was tightly, you know pressed uh the jerry curl version you you see that in uh coming to america with the actor he'd go on to be on on uh on er but he's got the he, he's basically eddie, Mo- eddie murphy's foil that he's trying to get the girl away from in coming to america and there's even a scene where all the people who have the jerry curl because they use the is it something glow um there's a product and they all get up from the couch and they've stained it because they have so much product in their hair. I mean, now kids put, kids are just now, I guess, not putting as much product as they used to in their hair, but there was definitely a re-kind of engagement with product in the hair among teenage teenage men because, of course, I, had t- I have two teenage men and I watched them go through it recently in high school, but this was the late 80s. White men, Latino men, black men, uh, all men were somewhat dabbling with, you know, these perms and they would put some product in. Um and sometimes they wouldn't. But 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 across the board this was a look. And the Beyonder has stylistically Jim Shooter is clearly asking to reflect this perm look with kind of a medium in the background, kind of medium length on the shoulders. And uh he looked like a bad reject from fill in the blank music video. And with his White, members-only, parachute pants combo, looking like Michael Jackson in Thriller. Very strange. He, If they had painted him brown, he would have looked... I, I felt like they were trying to make Michael Jackson the Beyonder. It looked like Michael Jackson is the Beyonder. And I thought that was... A very strange. Now, some of you are going to Google right now, and you're going to go, "Oh my God, he's not kidding!" I'm looking at these drawings. His face, his full figure, head to toe, mid, you know, mid-sized bus shots of The Beyonder. He is he looks like this '80s, you know, mid '80s uh, uh, pop, maybe Euro pop singer, and I just the look baffled. Me in a world where we have visuals like Kang the Conqueror and Doctor Doom and Magneto and the Wrecking Crew, and you know. The Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, Count Nefaria. I mean, cool visuals. My entire you had the Beyonder looking like Michael Jackson as as Captain Whitebread. Okay, and that was just the beginning. When we saw those promo stuff, we were as a fan base decidedly not interested. Now, I'm gonna pivot real quick to share with you that comics interview. Uh, Issue that I shared with you guys, uh, the penciler, the the uh, first guy to come up with X Factor in a recent episode, I shared with you an interview with Jackson Geist. Well, in that same issue, at the end, and it it kind of feels like it honestly kind of feels like this is a buddy comics interview. Number twenty-eight got X Factor on the cover, a giant X, black and white cover, has an interview with a uh, with a retailer, and his name is Bruce Conklin, and he is standing outside his uh, his store called the October County, October Country, and it is uh, a store uh, that that the October country owned by bruce conklin in the college town of new paltz new york and bruce is smiling as big as he can in front of his store and he gives a very in-detailed interview to the interviewer here and it's almost like is was this guy a friend of a friend how did he rate how did he get this this interview but nonetheless the gentleman named mitch cone interviews bruce conklin who brags, just let's, let's, let's revisit. Let's get into Bruce Conklin, a retailer. When is he a retailer? Again, this is 1985. This is the time I'm about to talk to you about. This is the time of secret wars. It talks about Bruce, uh, Bruce Conklin opening this store. He says like, uh, what do you sell in your store? And he says everything, everything that has to do with collectibles, toys, books, science fiction magazines. You know, if it's not here, I have it somewhere and we sell it through the mail. If we sell it in person, so if you can ask for it, I can definitely find it. So Mitch says, we are here with Bruce Conklin, the owner of the store, The October Country. Again, in New Paltz, New York. I don't know if Bruce is alive. C-O-N-K-L-I-N, Bruce Conklin. But this interview kicked me in the pants. I could not. I was howling out, out loud. Uh, they they. So so again, they detail that the store is loaded, located in New Paltz, P-A-L-T-Z, New Paltz, New York, 90 miles from New York city. He says, how did you start this store, Bruce? He says, well, I had a mail order business about six years for, for six years. And this store I opened five years ago this June. And he goes, wow, you've been open a long time. He goes, especially for a rural area. He says, and you've been in this one location this entire time. And he says the entire time, there are so many comic book people around here. He says, Al Williamson, Barry Windsor Smith, shop in my store. I guess it was, uh, you know, before everything got going in comics. And uh, he says, uh, he's just a, talking to Barry Windsor Smith. He's just a really nice guy with an English accent. He says, uh, go, goes on and talks about other people that go through his store. He says, uh, you know, he he, uh, he he I'm skipping down and he, he basically refers to the area that he has this store in that, uh, this is a place where mothers do not drop their kids off to buy comic books. It just doesn't happen. Even though my major business is kids comic buying comic books. The interviewer says you're in a unique situation for a comic book store. I guess you'd probably rather be in a small town. If it's a college town, Bruce says, well, I don't know about that. I think you can be in any small town that has a lot of traffic. You could be in a vacation town. He said, could you do this in Kingston? I believe I could. It's a matter of getting the word out to the right people. Because I would say that maybe only 50% of my business comes from the town, from the town itself. And that's only recently, he says. Before that, I was doing most of my business 40 miles away, as far as 40 miles away. In Middletown, people who don't just want to go into the city for their comics, they'll drive here. I get a lot. He goes, there's two guys who come up twice a year from New Rochelle. And they buy all my fantasy, all my Elfquest stuff. They don't want to go into New York City to get it. They don't. Uh, have any outlet for the sword and sorcery fantasy elf quest material that they want? He says the the interviewer says, "Well, you're really close to Poughkeepsie, uh, and 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 so again they continue on, and he's gonna about he's about to start asking him about what sells and what he does well with, and uh, he says, uh, and this is the crazy part. Can you imagine? And I've talked about it on the air about how the clerks." The clerks at the comic book store who try and diminish interest in a book, like if you're working for me, I want you to sell every book. I've I've talked to you about it before. How often do you go to a gro- to a either a grocery store or a clothing store? And when you're bringing up your khakis and your shirt at the counter of the store, and some 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 stores like like the Old Navy's, the Gap, the uh, the Banana Republics, they're instructed. Would you like some socks with that? Would you like a belt? They're adding to your purchase. They're not saying, wait, you're not really buying those khakis, right? Or you're not buying that shirt. No, they are there to encourage to upsize you. Just like now McDonald's says, would you like to supersize it? Would you like to upsize your meal? Okay, imagine being a comics retailer. So again, I've pivoted Secret Wars two, but it's coming. But it's in the midst of this Bruce Conklin interview in Comics Interview Magazine. I don't know why they interviewed this guy, but I had to share it with you. I had to absolutely read from this magazine and share it with you. He says, uh, do you read every single book you carry? And he says, do you have an opinion? He says, yes, that's the way you sell comics, Bruce Conklin says, comic store owner in New Paltz. If you don't have an opinion about the comic book, people can tell that you're not into the hobby. If you don't have an opinion, well, then what's the sense of even running the store? If somebody comes in and asks you, and they're spending $20 a book on comic books and their choices, whether or not to spend a buck 50 on a new book or not, and they buy it and it's cruddy. They're going to cut back pretty soon. They won't be buying the good stuff if they get stung enough times. So I reread, you know I, I, I read and pretest each and every book and I give an opinion and I'll tell people that's not a good book. You know, he says, the interviewer says, wait, you actually discourage people from buying. I cannot even believe I'm reading this to you. I definitely won't. He says, uh, did you do that with V? And he says, no, and I'll tell you why. I didn't do it with V because only four people read that. And they said they liked it. Now, I read it. didn't make any sense to me. I told people I read it, and it didn't make any sense to me. So I didn't offend the four people that, re- that read it. But I did tell people not to buy Ms. Mystic. That was the brand new book that Neil Adams uh, released to much acclaim because it was the first new book from Neil Adams in quite some time. And you know that I have Neil Adams on my Mount Rushmore the greatest comic book artist of all space and time. This guy said, I told people not to buy Ms. Mystic. I told them he doubles down. Definitely do not buy this. I'm stuck with a hundred of them. That's $75. I'll take the loss. Big deal. By the same token, they believe on me. They believe in me. If a book comes out and I recommend it, I will sell much more. He goes, First Comics is a comic store that's starting out in my area. My quantities are nearly 100 per issue of all the first comics. There's stores in Albany that can't give the damn comics away. I sell just as many as back issues. But of course, yes, I have to read them. You have to read your comics. I've read a couple of regular comics. I'm a DC fan. I read Batman. I read Batman every month. I checked out the new JLA. If I have time, if I read it and it comes out, and if it looks fun and it looks more fun than usual, I'll, I'll tell people about it. The interviewer says, wait, you just said, didn't you just say that you read everything? He goes, I do read everything, every new title. Oh, I read every new title. Now, if it's a horrible number one, I won't read a number two. And there are things that are out in the racks right now, and you pretty much know exactly what they're like. And so I'm still baffled that this guy actively tells people in 1985, in print, bragging, he's proud that he's going to. He told people Ms. Mystic is no good because he wanted them to listen. He wanted to be the gatekeeper for the tastes of the people at his store. Can you imagine? Why are you buying that milk? Why are you buying those grapes? Why are you buying that brand of chip at, at, at the checkout counter? Just ring me up, dude. Just ring me up, dude. This is a plague on the comic industry. Every time I think that it's going away, I do kind of see it rear its head in the stores that I visit. But for the most part, today's guys are so, are told just, just smile, ring them up. It's not your job to curate. If, if you're curating, that's going to turn ugly and it's ultimately going to cost you. And Bruce Conklin, I'd love to have a follow-up with this guy and re-ask him all these questions. But here it is in print in a major comic book publication, a major interview publication. He says, Hey Mitch, do you have he, the interviewer asked Bruce, do you have any thoughts about expanding the story? He goes, I'd love to expand, but it takes a lot of money and you don't make a whole lot of money selling comics. Or at least I don't. Well, Bruce, let's go back up six questions. You want to know why you're not making a lot of money selling comics, Bruce? Because <laughs> you just told people not to buy the comics. You guys, can you even believe that this exists? I am holding it. This is me folding the page. You are hearing me fold the pages. Bruce Conklin and his comic store in New Paltz, who gets people driving 40 miles to come buy products for him because they don't want to go to the New York, to, to, into the city, into Manhattan. And he actively tells people not to buy them and then says, I can't expand because I don't make enough money. Hey, Bruce, I have a solution. I have a solution for you. Maybe don't discourage the comics. Well, if, if I tell them to buy something, it's not good. They won't come back. That's delusional. So uh, he says, uh, are you on a friendly basis with the competition, the stores in your area? He goes, yes, definitely. There are a couple of people who consider me their enemy. And they're already out of business. Well, Bruce, I'm, I kind of feel like so are you. Um, they never had good business sense, but one of the guys was a former customer of, mine, a customer of mine. He probably built his entire collection through me. He runs a gold and silver store, but he sells comic books in it. And I and, if, and I connected him with the right people so that he could do that. The other store is a person I used to sit side by side he, uh, with at Sunday shows. He goes to New York City, picks up the new books for both of us. So I would say it's a friendly competition. I'm sure that he'd like to have every one of my customers and I'd love to have every one of his. It ain't going to go that way and we're not going to shoot each other and kill each other and kill the business. We're just we're just competitive. All right, we're getting to Secret Wars because throughout this interview, all the, all the art on all the pages is the books coming out in 1985 and they're all Secret Wars too. So jumping right into it, they talk about the price guide, which we're going to have an episode coming up on. But he says right here, he says, uh, look, Mitch says, this is the secret wars of it all. So do you see the retail comic book business? How do you see the retail comic book business doing in the future? He says, well, it all depends upon the comic book industry, the people that make the product. It has nothing to do with me. I'm pausing dramatically because he just told us two pages ago that he actively discourages purchases of books that he doesn't like, that he has a hundred copies of. This guy is baffling me. I can't, I am so excited to share this with you. I don't even know what I'm going to name this episode yet, but it's got to have this guy in it. He goes, it doesn't have anything to do with me. They've got to start getting the product out on time. They've got to begin to have a better understanding of what sells and what doesn't. For every success, there's five failures. And the failures come from not just everyone paying attention to the comic book buying. And the the failures come from just not paying attention to what the comic book buyer is saying. And Mitch says, well, can you give me an example of what you're saying? He goes, let's see. I'm going to talk about Secret Wars too. It's just not going to be a success, okay? I have a feeling it's it's just not going to be the success that Secret Wars was. I probably, I probably feel that Secret Wars was one of the worst comic books I've ever read. And lots of fans have been saying that there is no denying that. 900,000 copies is a great number. And the numbers I saw sell in my store are better than anything I've sold in my store ever. She's talking about Secret Wars number one. But out of the 200 or 300 people who bought the book in my store, I would say more than half say they will never get involved with a series like that again, that they'll know better next time, which means that they bought three issues and decided not to buy it all the way through. But the disappointment was so high that I see Secret Wars 2 having a tough time, having having the same success as Secret Wars. Number one, no way. Now, Marvel's going to say... It'll do half that and we're still in good shape. But each time that they do a book like that, they lose the confidence of the buyer a little more, no matter how much money they make on it. They're winning the battle, but they're losing the war. And these are exclamation points that I'm not putting on this. They're in the interview. He's as passionate as I'm reading it. They do that with a lot of their books. Longtime collector, a guy I say spends 50 and 40, 40 to $50 a week. He buys everything, everything that's coming out to digress a second. We're going to a system in the store where we're offering subscription services. Oh God, please save me your commercial. But yeah, he is on track. He believes that half the people in his store didn't like Secret Wars, so they're not going to buy Secret Wars 2. Well, Marvel didn't believe that. It's interesting, later on in here, two pages later, he talks about the Kitty Pride Wolverine miniseries that came out the year before. It was the follow-up to the Frank Miller miniseries that I mentioned that was the best-selling Wolverine, best-selling miniseries Marvel had done when they released it. It was the big launch of Wolverine as a solo character with the big Daredevil guy. He says, uh, I listen to people as they come in and tell me about comics. I think that's what publishers don't do. I mean, you can read a guy's letters in the back all you like and you know what everyone in the world thinks about comics because they're printed in the letters page. I wouldn't know what to do. I wouldn't know what to order if I just listened to what people said and what they liked. And that's a whole problem right now with publishing comics. Because no one knows what sells. It's hit and miss. Before I even knew who was drawing Kitty and Wolverine. People had heard about it and they were excited about it. As soon as they found out who was drawing it, the interest went down a hundredfold. If you're going to do special books like that, why don't you put special people on it? I have nothing against, uh, let's see, who was it? Um, Al Milgram. Yeah, Al Milgram. In fact, I first saw Milgram in the '70s. He's a nice guy. He says, but Al Milgram's not a fan favorite, and he doesn't have the talent of ten or fifteen people that they could have selected to draw Kitty and Wolverine. I think that's the disappointing part. And I think that because that that's be, that, um, and I and I think that because it's Kitty Pride and Wolverine, they they think Marvel is going to sell it anyway. Marvel going Marvel thinks they're just going to sell it anyway. But when you're having a special event, you need to get the best best person for that book. Earlier he mentioned Secret Wars 2 and how he didn't think it was going to be as, as successful. So we're going to hone in right now on what I, what I hinted at earlier. Secret Wars 2, there's an entire first issue drawn by the brother of John Buscema. The, the best artist ever had a brother who drew not quite as beautifully as he did, but he was better than a journeyman, maybe not always a consistent fan favorite, hooked up with the right anchor, did phenomenal work. His name is Sal, Sal Buscema. Sal Bissema is still alive, kicking, drawing. Sal is a talented guy. Sal was, for many years, doing two books a month for Marvel. He was like, as close as you were going to get in terms of output to Jack Kirby. My entire kind of youth, he was doing The Hulk and Rom. And there are times in the collective world that he did an issue of Defenders, and an issue of The Avengers, and an issue of The Hulk in the same month. There are times this guy did 70 pages a month for Marvel. He could do breakdowns, he could do finished pencils, and... He followed Walt Simonson on Thor, penciling and inking Thor. Later, some of you knew that he took over uh, Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man in the 90s as Spider-Man had blown up under Todd McFarlane and Eric Larson. And then it was like Mark Bagley and Sal Biasema who were left to carry the torch. Sal had already been in the business three, four decades by that time. Uh, Still capable, still incredibly, um, you know, talented, disciplined and productive. Jim Shooter tapped him and, and Sal had been doing monthly Hulk and Rom, Hulk and Rom, two two big books for Marvel, two best-selling books. Rom launched out of the gate. Sal Busema drew almost every issue. It went into the 70s, okay? This book had many, many good years under it in a very competitive marketplace. Rom didn't succeed in a low-level marketplace. Rom succeeded at the height of the X-Men, the Teen Titans, Simonson's Thor, Miller's Daredevil. I mean, big stuff. Jim Shooter has Sal B. Sema draw all of Secret Wars number two. You can get it online. All the pages are available. If you didn't know about it, just Google Sal B. Sema Secret Wars. They'll come up. I have every single page downloaded. It is a beautiful book. It is far, far, far better. It is far better than the uh, the comic that we received by the aforementioned very nice guy Al Milgram, okay um, but this entire first issue of Secret Wars is uh, is is available on many different outlets and you will be able to look at the beautiful very very clear I mean all manner of storytelling. but are we in the sea of medium shots that we were on Secret Wars again? We are. Five pages in, I have one close-up. Six pages in, I have one close-up. Seven pages in, I have two close-ups. Eight pages in, I now have three. Total across eight pages. Nine pages in, I'm getting another close-up. On the 10th page, I get one close-up. But this is in a sea of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight panels on a page. A lot of medium shots. Lots of characters. It's the X-Men. It's the Avengers. It's Magneto. It's She-Hulk. And I'm flipping through. The entire issue was done. It had this issue come out, I feel that the book would have been better served. But for one reason, I mean, Magneto is battling. The Beyonder is here. Um, Jim Shooter wrote this. Uh, here is the, you know, perm slash jerry curl Beyonder in his members-only jacket and parachute pants, Okay. This entire issue is scrapped because Jim Shooter and Salby Semma have a falling out. Jim Shooter, this was the beginning of the cracks. Jim would be gone two years later. He would be he would leave Marvel under a lot of controversy. It has never made me look at him any different because his accomplishments are so substantial. But Secret Wars Two was like the biggest frown on your face. Like, what? What? Salbi Semma even did the cover to secret wars 2 they later used it as a cover to amazing heroes to promote secret wars 2 after he was gone but this entire first issue available online you can see all the different pages a lot of them are in blue lines a couple are inked some are in like lead pencil but sal went to town clear concise very tight storytelling lots of six and seven, seven eight panel pages not a lot of big shots just very capably told apparently jim thought the work was uninspired gym shooter who had micromanaged the shit out of these pages according to Sal because Sal says that the reason the issue wasn't used is that he had a blow up with Jim and he walked off the project because he couldn't handle being micromanaged in my head. I hear Mike Zek saying, I couldn't do it again. I couldn't, I could barely get through Secret Wars the first time it made me a lot of money. I love the checks, the royalties, the sales were great. We were in the royalty zone at Marvel at the time. Mike Zek says, I made great money, but it was miserable, it was a miserable experience. All of the micromanaging, all of the medium shots. This would carry on to Valiant. And when I actually asked Jim Shooter at a lunch in 1994, he said, look, look, and I've mentioned this on another book. The reason my artists do a lot of medium shots is, is I'm breaking a lot of new talent at Valiant. I'm breaking a lot of new talent. Is, there's a lot of guys who are doing their very, very first work. So I'd rather have little ugly panels and big ugly panels. Cause you guys, you image guys, you're polished. You draw big stuff. You've learned it. That that's a talent. My guys can't do that. So I'd rather have them b- draw little ugly pictures than big ugly pictures. Those are Jim Shooter's words verbatim. Dan Frego was sitting there with me of the extreme studios. We were outside of a... Hilton having breakfast with him on a Saturday afternoon before he had his giant signing at Mile High Comics in Anaheim. Chuck Rosansky was uh, late to the breakfast because he was setting up everything at the store, but it was a time when I was feeling out Jim because I really, really wanted to work with him because I was such a fan of all his written work from Legion of Superheroes to the Avengers, the Korback Saga, the Bride of Ultron, Jocasta, Count Nefaria. He didn't create Count Nefaria, but he refined him. Graviton, great villains, great ideas, great imagination. But I got a little into the head of Jim Shooter and then I see that Sal B. and he had a blow up. Well, Sal walks off Secret Wars 2. Anyone who ever sees these are like, this is infinitely better than what we got. Al Milgram, we already heard from Bruce Conklin, but Bruce Conklin wouldn't say the name Al Milgram when he said that Secret Wars 2 wasn't gonna work. He just said that Secret Wars number one was so bad, no one was gonna buy Secret Wars number two. Then he goes on and says, as, cause Bruce Conklin, all he does in this comic book interview is is contradict himself. He's not making enough money because he chases customers away. Books don't sell because it's the talent that matters. But he's not mentioning that certain books don't sell because of the talent, but other ones he'll identify. Now, I remember as being a fan, I thought Al Milgram was um, an interesting choice to follow up the Wolverine miniseries that Frank Miller had done with a sequel, direct sequel to that story with Al Milgram, who was not a dedicated penciler. He had done penciling in the 70s. He had done Captain Marvel. He had done a lot of stuff, but he had mostly become an anchor. He had become a... Cover guy, very generous on cover assignments. I heard Al Milgram interviewed on a Captain America podcast, and his version of this was that Sal Bissema and Jim Shooter had had a falling out. According to Sal Bissema, in his interview, uh, he mentioned that he just couldn't take it anymore. He didn't want to work with Jim, with Jim Shooter. He didn't want to be micro, micromanaged. The first issue was miserable. He walks. Jim Shooter then hires Al Milgram and says, I will have you redraw the entire thing, but you got to do it fast. And that cut into the deadline. And Al Milgram will tell you that that is why the book suffered because he had to redraw the entire first issue. He didn't have to. Jim wanted him to. He accepted it. He was going to get paid from day one and then receive all the royalties because in order to receive all the royalties, he had to redraw the entirety of the first issue. There could be no salby Semmel whatsoever. So Al Milgram takes it upon himself to do just this and then says the rest of the series was rushed as a result even though they had a really nice, beautiful, accomplished artist in his own right. I don't say his name enough he's one of those like important if it was it was a basketball team he'd be the sixth man he's a guy that can come off the bench and make you better anytime he could hit shots all over the field in limited minutes Steve Lealoa a amazing penciler and inker himself was doing the polishes on Al's pencils but it wasn't enough it wasn't enough following Secret Wars with the big marquee names like Mike Zek and even the secondary guy the fill-in guy being Bob Layton those were fan favorites Al Milgram was never a fan favorite nice guy did journeyman work but not a fan favorite not the guy you pick uh, you know. To uh, to helm this, it would be like Rob Liefeld, who can't sing very well. At all, becoming the replacement for Steve Perry and Journey. Okay, it just doesn't fit. Al, M- Al Milgram was the wrong fit. It's cited here by Bruce Conklin that he was the wrong fit for Kitty and Wolverine. He was the wrong fit for Secret Wars Two. Secret Wars two, by the way, was the best selling book. Secret Wars 2 was the best-selling book of 1985. It is the best-selling book of 1985 and one of the worst uh, criticized and, um, and most mocked. It was just intrinsically sewn into the fabric of everything that Marvel was doing at the time. They, they spun it off every which way but loose. They had all manner of tie-ins. They doubled down on what they were trying with Secret Wars because now they'd seen that it had worked. But Secret Wars 2 with the Beyonder in his Michael Jackson, um, you know, permed haircut, examining, walking around like a human, uh, just, it was going to sell just because it had the logo Secret Wars 2 on it. And this kind of goes to, I've disagreed with everything this guy says, but he, he says here, he mentions Al Milgram again, and he says, you know, I could, I could sell Al Milgram on a Captain America book because people are going to buy Captain America month in and month out. But on special event project, they need special event artists. So... This is literally insane, this interview that I shared with you about this guy. And I was directly reading quotes from Mr. Conklin and how he doesn't have enough money to expand his store, but he will chase off sales of new books because he makes him feel better. Because that then he's a more qualified gatekeeper. 1985, you were a crazy bitch. Secret Wars 2, Al Milgram, an entire issue by Sal B. Semma that is beautiful. Look it up. I can't show you on a podcast, but I can tell you it exists. He did the cover too. Maybe the only good call on Secret Wars number one was that Jim Shooter called up John Byrne and said, will you do me a new cover? Clearly inspired by Sal Sema's original cover layout. John John Byrne, of Super X-Men fame, fan favorite, most popular guy in the business, draws the cover with Terry Austin, his X-Men collaborator, inking it, and it popped. I bought it. I didn't like it. A lot of people bought it. They didn't like it. There wasn't a Secret Wars 3 for a very, very long time because Secret Wars 2 did cash some checks in the interest of everything that was going on with Secret Wars 1. It did naturally get the eyeballs, but like so many sequels that go wrong, this one went terribly wrong. It wasn't just the art. It wasn't just the storytelling. It was the the, the, the Beyonder and his 1980s permed hair, white members only jacket, Michael Jackson thriller, parachute pants, get up. Uh, Apparently Sal said that Jim thought that his work on issue one was uninspired. You can look it up yourself and see for yourself. It's beautiful work. I would love to, in my old age, print out every page and ink it up. And just ink it up myself. And just have it, because I, I think Sal is such a great draftsman, such a solid. His faces, his figure work, his um, composition, his layout, his blocking, he's fantastic. His brother is on the Mount Rushmore of comics, okay? They are an amazing family legacy uh, as important as any other family legacy that we've ever seen in comics including the Kuberts and the Ramitas. But Secret Wars 2 was a misfire from the get-go. It was poorly received, it was quickly dismissed, and it was again as comics were changing more towards the auteur in the same way the 70s filmmakers moved in because Frank Miller's Dark Knight was about to drop, Watchmen was about to drop. Secret Wars 2 was just kind of a, a a a kind of a holdover of 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 a mini of a of a series that I disagree with Mr. Conklin. People loved Secret Wars. They loved it. It just hit us in all the feels. All the characters running around, battling, fighting, being heroic by extremely commercial comic book teams. Secret Wars 2 was opposite that. Opposite that. A non-fan favorite guy picked to redraw an issue. Maybe he did lose time. That's what he said on this Captain America podcast. He said he lost time. He was catching up. He was running to catch up the entire time. The story was not anywhere near the success Uh, And, 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 and just, it wasn't the hunger games, which was what battle world represented for our Marvel heroes, which is why you and me as fans bought into it as much as we can. So I guarantee you secret Wars two and the beyonder, you know, maybe it'll be a fun knock. Maybe it'd be one of those things if the actor kind of turned and twirled and for one minute became that parachute pants, members only guy. And now, eventually, they gave him some armor towards the end, but it's outlandish armor. And it even has kind of a shoulder pad element to it, but it's outlandish. Um, just the the, the, cur- the curly, permed hair. It, it, you, you just lost me. It was so trendy. It was the most trendy I'd ever seen Marvel Comics try to be. Secret Wars 2 is a misfire. I have ruled it. I, myself, I'll take the blame as a misfire across the board. It, it certainly did move a lot of copies, but unlike its predecessor, it was not viewed positively at all. And as I said earlier, the next positive review of Secret Wars 2 that I experience will be the first positive review of Secret Wars 2 that I've ever, ever experienced. So uh, whatever they're going to do, the Jonathan Hickman or the original with Beyonder, I wish them all the best. It'll probably be some weird mashup because you know that's what that's what they do. That's what Marvel does. That's what the MCU does. They kind of take different ideas. The Civil War that we got on screen was not the Civil War that I loved in comics. It was nowhere near the Mark Millar, uh, uh, Mark Miller, Steve McNiven epic. But it it had enough. It had enough, in regards to uh, to satisfy and to elevate and to extend the saga that they were trying to to tell. So um, you know, again. There's a quote that says Secret Wars 2 was 1985's best-selling comic book. However, it was the most despised comic of the year in the eyes of the fan press, the poor reviews of fans, uh, and 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 it made numerous worst comic book of the year list. That, my friends, is Secret Wars 2, a first issue that was drawn by one of Marvel's most capable hands with a falling out with Mr. Shooter, editor-in-chief, immediately ran to his buddy Al, and uh I'm not sure this the, the 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 series ever recovered. And maybe maybe Sal knew something that we didn't. Maybe those pages that he poured everything into, because they're good, they're good. They're good Sal Bisema pages. You're gonna look up Secret Wars 2, you're gonna get, you're gonna Google Salbisema S-A-L-B-U-S-C-E-M-A, and you're gonna see what I am talking about. Bruce Conklin, that interview lives in infamy. This guy is at odds with himself. Everything he said is a contradiction, a paragraph later. Uh it all it's almost like they trolled us with this interview I mean he runs he runs people off um here, here's another one that I'll, I'll leave you with this as, as we exit this this crazy Bruce Conklin here's the full Al Milgram I could sell Captain America every day if every day if Al Milgram did it because people pick up Captain America and uh, if Al Milgram's there they already know what his artwork looks like but it's it's Captain America that they're after that's his quote he then says but I have something but if I have something like Iceman, and I have a John Romita Jr. drawing it, it's not going to sell. And on that note, kids, we are saying goodbye to this episode of Secret Wars 2 sequels and crazy comic book retailers. Um, that, that was just, that had to be shared. Bruce Conklin, dropping dimes. I would love to sit down with this guy if he still exists, I, I am certain. Being Rob Liefeld, I would get his ire from the 90s. And I'm sure something terrible involving image comics happened along the way. I need the Bruce Conklin follow-up interview now. 1985, this version of him. And there are numerous pictures of him in here. I I don't know if his best friend was related to the production of this comic at all. I don't know why he was the retailer chosen in a sea of really well-known retailers at the time. Whether it was Moondogs or Mile High Comics or Forbidden Planet. But we got Bruce Conklin from October country and that interview um, hopefully now gets a new life of its own. You can, you can again, X it's, it's comics interview, comics interview magazine, number 28, the X factor issue. I, I, I examined it for the Jackson guys X factor juice that I shared with you. And I had to pivot back to all that Mr. Bruce Conklin uh, uh, explained here. And like I said, I don't even know if he's still among us. I guess I'll have to go on Facebook and search him but it it had to be shared it must be shared what secret wars are we getting I don't know but secret wars 2 is kind of an examination in hubris and jim shooter uh the writing was on the wall and every possible misstep misfire was taken with this book should have never chased alby off. should have begged to keep him stay and 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 I would love to have seen what that version looked like but we didn't and the Secret Wars two that we got is is maybe the version that we all deserved in the first place. Wow, that was that was a lot to digest. 1985 had a lot going on, but Secret Wars two was definitely uh, front and center for Marvel Comics, and uh, and and it it, it absolutely uh, deserved an examining. I I I got to tell you, I wouldn't recommend it, but but if you want to go flip through it, you'll you'll see why. The end of every episode. I read your generous, very generous reviews that you leave for me um, across all of the different platforms that are um, that, that 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 share this podcast with you guys, and and it it is my great pleasure always to bring to you guys uh, the things that you leave for me. It's it's really uh, among the nicest. things things you guys can do and it helps us so much with the platform when you leave them it helps get the word of mouth out there and i am just always so touched and so thankful that you guys bother to even write these reviews this comes from us from michael zoltanky zoltanky z-u-l-t-a-n-k-y michael michael writes in his generous review he says hey rob just wanted to let you know i love your podcast I have been a fan since I was 12. I now have a 12 year old of my own and he's experiencing your work through my own comic collection. I live in Southwest Florida and I really wanted to come and see you at your comic book signing when you were in Clearwater, but I couldn't do it due to my work commitments. I will definitely try to be there for your next appearance. I wanted to ask after listening to your last uh, several podcasts, I know your dad was a pastor. And you've had lots of biblical overtones to your work your entire career. Have you ever thought of doing a project relating to the Bible? The reason that I ask is that I am a believer and I am not happy with the portrayal of Bible material in pop culture. And you clearly have a love and respect for the material. Uh, I found one of your old convention sketchbooks and it had New Testament sketches and they blew my mind. My kids and I printed them off, inked them and colored them. I collaged them into a piece that is hanging up in my kids' room. Just thought I would ask. Definitely something I'd be interesting in picking up. Thank you again for your podcast, your work, and I just love all that you do. I deal with a fair amount of depression and anxiety and over the last year, I am going back and and listening to old episodes of Rob Observations while I'm commuting or just hanging out at home. It always puts me in a better mood. Thank you, Michael Zoltenki. And Michael... That is so great. You know, the thing is, I wish that I had the time to do de- it. <laughs> I wish that I had the time to dedicate to doing an adapted version of the life of David, which I think predates. I don't think I know. I mean, but the it predates the Arthurian legend, and it is a great for my money. King David is the greatest action adventure uh, three part kind of trilogy ever. You'd have David, uh, you know, just david the shepherd uh david the wanted david the hunted and then david the king all three chapters are fantastic and works in all of the amazing treachery betrayal wars Uh, i think i've covered this did you know that david went into an encampment and cut off all of the dicks of the enemy yes he did he delivered a bag of dicks to king saul this is true i am not lying you will see this it is in the Bible. That is only one incredible aspect, but just the the scope, having his son Absalom turn on him and raising an army to kill him is very much Modred and Arthur. So yes, long, long answer to your question. Uh, the life of David is begging for a kick-ass, uh, interpretation. It is to me, the most sweeping action adventure epic. And now that I'm telling you this, I don't know why I haven't done it already. Anyway, thank you, Michael. Thank you for all the reviews that you guys leave and share. And I am so grateful that you do and that you listen to this show and that you're telling your friends and you're um, passing it along. Thank you. I'm, I'm so thrilled that our audience continues to expand. When you leave your reviews, I read them at the end of each and every show. So I will find it. This page has a dedicated page on Facebook. Rob Rob's observations with Rob Liefeld is a page on Facebook. You will find it. It will have the same icon. Like it. Leave a message. I'll find it. I'll like it back. I'll reach you. I have a page, a group, Rob Liefeld, an extreme group. It is moderated by myself and a gentleman named Terry Sala, S-A-L-A. We will be the administrators who approve you and approve your posts in, in the group it is growing leaps and bounds every day. I would love for you guys to participate. Look for it on Facebook. Rob Liefeld and Extreme Group is exactly the title. Again, the administrators will be myself and Terry. That's how you know you found the right plot, um, the, the, the right place, and, and it's a fun place, and you should visit it. On inst- on social media, I am at Robert Leifeld on Twitter. I'm always on Twitter. I talk to you guys. We talk back and forth. We share ideas. It's super fun. I am on Instagram at Rob Liefeld, Robert Liefeld, Twitter at, at Instagram is Rob Leifeld. Rob Leifeld Instagram, Robert Liefeld, Twitter. Follow me on both. I love hanging out with you guys. I read your mentions, your comments, um, and just, uh, your, your DMS. It's so fun getting, being able to interact with, with, um, with people all around the world. Now that is the best and, and most um, positive aspect of all of technology and social media. I have a Whatnot account. Whatnot is a live stream uh, app where you sell, and I certainly have uh, decades of comic books, but in the last 10 years alone, just dozens and dozens of exclusive variants that I have offered from time to time. I basically am bringing a comic con, a comic appearance to you each and every time I jump on Whatnot. Get Whatnot, download it, find Rob Liefeld, join me and, and hit me up on one of my live streams. I would love to see you there. It would be really Um, super fun. So there you go. There is all the places you can find me. I hope you come back and see me the next time. I hope that when you do, you have, uh, and and listen to our next episode. I thought, I hope that you have fed your spiritual self, your emotional self, your physical self, and your mental self, all of the quadrants that need to be attended to. You know, my, my advice never changes. Hang out with friends, hang out with family. This summer I watched, uh, you know, Godfather, uh, with, with my son, the original Godfather. It was so fun. Um, I, I've, I've, you know, gone to see Top Gun with every single member member of my family. Maverick has been enjoyed multiple times by all different members of the Liefeld family. I love watching streaming. I love comic books, reading a good comic, a good trade paperback, a good hardcover, any good collection. Uh, I just, it feeds the soul, the creativity, the, the, the creative spirit. Um, I eat fun food. I mix it up. I don't always eat bad, but when I do... I love it. Burgers, tacos, fries, pizzas. Come on, guys. Um, Wash it down with a good cupcake, root beer float, shake. Come on, man. Just have a cheat day. Make that cheat day count or maybe a cheat week. I don't know. Whatever you do that you can take a load off, remove the burdens of life. We need distractions. These distractions are important in kind of feeding us and giving us inspiration. That is always going to be my recommendation. I'm rooting for you. I hope you succeed. And I know that you guys are rooting for me and I appreciate it so much. Swing on back through the cul-de-sac. I will be here waiting for you. We will most certainly talk again real soon.